Our sermon title is Opening 1 Timothy, and I invite you to do just that. Open 1 Timothy, please, on page 1191 in the Pew Bibles. On Sunday mornings, our series is called Restoring the Ruins, and on these Sunday evenings now, we begin something of a parallel theme, building a healthy church. So let's lay the first brick in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, so strongly did you remind us this morning of the importance of prayer. You brought that challenge that prayer must come first, that it must not be neglected, that we must lean on you. And so, Father, with that in mind, we come and we pray over the preaching of your word. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will take your word of truth and make it clear And that he will apply it to us, not just as individuals, but as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Reimagining church. Rethinking the church. Church shift. Church next. Subtitle, Quantum Changes in How We Do Ministry. Building a Contagious Church. Growing an Engaged Church. Subtitle, How to Stop Doing Church and Start Being the Church Again. The Purpose Driven Church. The Deliberate Church. Simple church, total church, emerging churches, the emotionally healthy church, a strategy for discipleship that actually changes lives. It seems that wherever we look these days, books are being written by the paper ton about church. Not only are they being written about the church, but they are also, as many of these titles suggest, they are also calling for change within the church. It appears to be the prevailing perspective that for one reason or another, the church of today is in radical need of reformation. 
of alteration and adaptation as we seek to meet the demands of the 21st century world. However, while this much is a consensus, the need for change, what those changes should be is hardly agreed upon. All sorts of solutions in these volumes are being offered. Moreover, and more preliminary, what voices we should listen to as the church, who should influence us in terms of what changes we must make, well, this too seems up for grabs today. Some of the books I've just listed, though not all, for example, are listening a great deal to many of the leading figures in the business world. And they are unashamedly liberal in quoting these business gurus whose models of business are apparently the solution for the church. Others, simultaneously, are listening eagerly to the voices coming from the world of sociology or human psychology. And they're seeking to take these grids and apply them to the ills and ailments of the church. Maybe too few are listening carefully to the Scriptures. I say this by very limited and cursory observation in my own reading of many of these books, that it seems that too few are seriously grappling with Scripture as they seek to find the way ahead. And yet one thing we must surely believe, I hope, in this church, and that we re-emphasize as we begin this new series tonight, is that we believe that the only way forward as a church is to first go back, to go back to the Scriptures, to first of all go back and to listen to its ancient words and to allow those words to shape and mold us and set the direction for the way ahead. Now, it is with this conviction that we are studying 1 Timothy and not the latest business manual. We turn to 1 Timothy, which is, even within the Scriptures, arguably the most insightful study on the church. Now, it is not 1 Timothy, a church manual. And it does not tell us everything we need to know about the church. But it is nonetheless the most helpful, concentrated, one-stop study that we could do as we think about what it means to be the church and what it means to do church. And so with that, by way of sermon introduction and series introduction, I invite you to turn with me this evening to the letter introduction that we find here. We open 1 Timothy, and we set the scene by studying the first two verses of chapter 1. We're also going to branch out into chapter 3 when we come to our third point. I have three headings just to guide us through this evening. Now, the first is this. I would like you to meet the author of 1 Timothy. Meet the author of 1 Timothy. 
It's a common sight to see on the high streets queues of people who are strewn down the street who are waiting there for a book signing. Some author or another is in town and the book signing offers an occasion for the average Joe, for Joe Public, to meet the author. Well, we too have that privilege tonight. We also meet the author of a 2,000-year-old letter, which is within the bestseller of all time, the Bible. And we meet this author in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, indeed in the very first word of 1 Timothy. Paul, it simply begins. Now in these days, back in the first century, letter writing conventions were a little different to ours. In particular, authors of letters didn't sign off as we do. Rather, they signed on at the start of the letter. They put their name first. And so here in the opening line, the author signs on. Paul. Paulos. It's a Greek name. Now, with this designation, we immediately and we unambiguously identify our author. Need we say any more if we know our New Testaments than Paul? For Paul is one of the most prominent characters in all of the Bible. Trinity aside, he is, humanly speaking, perhaps the most forefront character in the New Testament. He's mentioned significantly more frequently, for example, than the Apostle Peter. And he is frequently and simply called Paul. Now, he hadn't always had this name, Paul. He had previously been known as Saul. It was a Jewish name. And Saul, indeed, had come from a Jewish background. He had been raised as a Jew. He had been raised as a strict Jew. He was part of the religious group, the party known as the Pharisees. Indeed, with typical Pharisaic zeal, he had been at the forefront of the persecutions of the early church. And yet Saul, by God's sovereign grace, had been confronted by Christ, had been converted by Christ, had been commissioned by the risen Lord on the Damascus road in that encounter he was not expecting. Years later, as he is sent out by the church in Antioch, as his commission really comes to its fruition and he's sent out to preach the gospel, we discover by observation that Saul forgoes his Jewish name and forever afterwards he leans on the Greek name Paul, which would make him much more conducive to those to whom he would preach. It is this Paul who authors 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy then is one of Paul's 13 letters preserved for us in the New Testament. And we notice in passing that while Paul often wrote in conjunction with someone else, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Timothy and Silas, yet here Paul stands alone. 
His name sits alone in the page. He is the sole author, humanly speaking, of this letter. And yet we notice that the opening isn't just so brief as Paul. Because Paul teases out a a slightly longer description of himself. And he describes himself in verse 1. Indeed, let me rephrase that. He presents himself very intentionally as an author with authority. Sometimes when we read certain books, particularly academic books, we ask the question, don't we? Does this author have authority? Does he have the right credentials, experience, knowledge? Does he have the right to teach me on this subject? Well, in writing 1 Timothy, there is no questioning the authority of the author. Because first of all, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, an apostle, what's that when it's in English? An apostle, in its most general sense in the New Testament, simply describes someone who is a messenger or a representative. In this wider sense, we find a fair number of people who are called apostles in the New Testament. These messengers are given, in fact, a designation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, they're called apostles of the churches. And they were messengers of the churches in the sense that they obviously serve the church. They serve the church by going on errands for them. They would go as messengers to other local congregations, or they would take the message of the gospel out into the pagan world. And in this sense, they were apostles of the churches. I guess, uh, interestingly, the nearest modern equivalent would be missionaries today. In one sense, they are the modern equivalent of apostles of the churches. You might want to call this apostles with a small a. You know, when Paul calls himself an apostle, he does not mean that he is simply an apostle of the churches. Because you notice what he says, as we look at it carefully, he is, to use his words, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And by this terminology, Paul ranks himself alongside a very tight, select, narrow group. Paul is standing alongside the 12, Jesus' closest followers, those that he called to be with him and to receive authority as apostles. Along with Paul, these 12 men plus Paul were given special authority by virtue of them having seen with their eyes the risen Lord Jesus and by the fact that Christ himself had personally appointed them to preach the gospel. They were therefore, in a very special sense, apostles of Christ Jesus. And this gives Paul very significant authority indeed. He was, of course, an apostle because he, one, had witnessed the risen Lord on the Damascus Road. Because he also had been personally appointed by Christ to preach. And this gives him very, very significant authority. 
when he writes this letter of 1 Timothy, he is not simply writing it as a pastor. When he writes this letter, he is not simply writing as an elder, or or it is not a, a prayer letter of a missionary. He is writing with capital A, apostolic authority. And indeed, he is so keen to stress this that he, you know, he really expands this out, doesn't he? Because he adds that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul says, it wasn't that I awoke one morning and thought to myself, okay, I've got some job options here. The first option is I could be a pastor, but I'm not quite sure of my people skills. Or maybe I could be a missionary, but, you know, I'm not so sure of my, my, I can travel well. Maybe parachurch, not quite my gift mix. Apostle, maybe. No, says Paul, I became an apostle for one reason. Two members of the Holy Trinity, God and Christ Jesus, commanded me to be so. Commissioned my apostleship. This is something we dare not forget, incidentally, about the apostles. They were not just a bunch of guys throwing their weight around, who somehow had invested themselves with a lot of clout. They themselves were men under authority at the command of Christ, at the command of God, and therefore they had authority over the churches. So Paul is one who is commanded by God our Savior and Christ our hope. Incidentally, these are beautiful designations. It would be lovely just to tease out. But very briefly, he is God our Savior. It's a, it's a, it's a term that is very rich in Old Testament roots. You find it throughout the Psalms. You find it in Deuteronomy 32 that God is our Savior. He's Israel's Savior, but he's now the church's Savior. You notice here, interestingly, that it is the Father, particularly, who is called the Savior here. Christ is also the Savior, but the Father is the Savior. The first person of the Trinity is the Savior in the sense that he is the author and the architect of our salvation. His Son comes into the world and is obedient unto death, yet it is according only to the plan of God our Savior. And if God is our Savior, then, and that's the beginning of our salvation, then also Christ is our hope. He is the end of our salvation. Just as the Father initiates the plan, so the Son executes it and completes it. When Paul speaks of our hope over in uh, Titus 2, verse 13, he says, we wait for the blessed hope. And what is this hope that Paul has in mind over in Titus 2.13? The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Paul says, on the occasion of Christ's return, Christ himself will finally and fully meet all of our hopes that are bound up in him. On that day, salvation's plan will be fully brought to its conclusion. And we will be fully saved, body and soul, on that day. 
Christ quite literally is our hope. It's not just that we believe in certain doctrines, brothers and sisters. We actually put our hope in Christ himself. He is our hope. Everything counts on him. I really do wonder in these days in which we live, where people are putting their hope. What kind of solid ground they are planting their feet on if it is not Christ who is their hope. It's very interesting that later on in this letter, in fact, it's ironic that in chapter 6, verse 17, Paul writes to Timothy that the rich, speaking of money here, that the rich should not put their hope in wealth. There's a place where a lot of people plant their feet, isn't it? In the house, in the job, in the possessions. And yet Paul says of these things, don't put your hope there, for riches are so uncertain. Wasn't he right? Paul goes on to advise, put your hope in God. That's a wise place to put your hopes. In Christ Jesus. I have no idea this evening where you should invest your money, except don't do it in Iceland or someplace like that. But I do know where you need to invest your hopes. And I do know where there's a safe place to plant your feet. And it's on the rock that is Christ our hope. It is Christ along with God the Savior who has commanded the apostle. A little word just before we leave this on why this is so significant. On why this note of authority is so important as it begins the letter. Why does it do so? Well, a very simple reason. It means that everything that follows in the letter of 1 Timothy has binding authority. It has divine authority. It comes not just as the human word of Paul. It comes as the divine word of God. And that is very important to grasp. In Paul's day, this was significant because the church in Ephesus, over which Timothy was, unfortunately, in his case, pastoring, because in this church, there were false teachers who were being harbored. And so Paul writes to underline his authority over these folks. He writes because a young man, a young delegate in this church, is having his authority undermined. And so he writes to him with apostolic authority, and he gives him instructions on that basis. So no one can question the commands. It was important to stress then. It's important to stress now. You and I don't stand over a book like 1 Timothy. This book towers over us. And that's important with 1 Timothy because you know there's a lot of tricky, difficult stuff in 1 Timothy. If you ask Christians these days, what's your, your favorite New Testament book? 1 Timothy isn't high on the list. It is maybe bottom on the list or somewhere near the bottom. Because it says things that seem to be out of kilter with our modern persuasions and sensibilities. In terms of what it talks about in the importance of authority and leadership and the character that must undergird that. In terms of what it talks about in relation to public worship and how it should be conducted in terms of what it instructs concerning gender roles within the church and a whole host of other hot potatoes that come up. There are going to be times in this series when you're going to hear things out of the Bible that you're not going to like. 
And at those moments, you need to remind yourself of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, that this is a book with divine authority. It is written by a man who himself is under command and who is giving these instructions to you. Well, that's Paul, the author of 1 Timothy. Now from author, we turn to receiver. And secondly, we recognize the recipient, recognize the recipient. Our, our second verse begins, to Timothy, to Timothy. It's pretty straightforward, this Bible study thing, isn't it? Uh, 1 Timothy was written to Timothy. No surprises. Although, uh, just notice before you brush off that, uh, that's actually significant in this sense, that this is one New Testament letter that was not written to a whole church. Most of the letters were written to churches. This letter is written for the benefit of the church. This letter is written for the instruction of the church. But it is actually not written to a church. It's written to an individual. It's just written to Timothy. And Timothy is to take its instructions and to disperse those within the church. Timothy, of course, is a well-known associate of Paul. Uh, he may well have been a convert of the apostle. We aren't 100% sure. Acts 16, uh, verses 1 to 3, give us a story of how Paul came into Timothy's hometown. What we do know is that not long after his conversion, Timothy was then whisked away by Paul. He was a promising young man with plenty of, of, of talent and spiritual gifts. And so Paul takes him with him on his journey and from this point, Timothy is almost a constant companion of the Apostle Paul's. Now, they were a tremendous combination, were Paul and Timothy. Timothy was a much younger man than the Apostle, uh, and yet the Apostle was a great example for Timothy. Not only in the way that he lived his life, which Timothy could observe day after day, but also Timothy sat, as it were, at the feet of the Apostle Paul, and he imbibed his teaching. You just imagine the quality of this one-to-one -one discipleship relationship, just you and the Apostle Paul. On the other hand, we also know that this was a reciprocal relationship. We know that the Apostle loved Timothy and appreciated Timothy and was blessed by Timothy. In 1 Corinthians 4.11... Paul calls Timothy, my son, whom I love. Isn't that beautiful? In Philippians 2.22, he describes Timothy as a son with his father who has served with me in the work of the gospel. So strong was this father-son relationship, this bond of trust and partnership, that Paul even at times entrusted Timothy with significant authority and responsibility. As here, where Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus in a cauldron of a situation to pastor the church. And here, as we look to verse 2, here is how Paul describes Timothy, my true son in the faith. If Timothy is the recipient by name, then true son in the faith is Timothy's status. He's a true son. He's a genuine son. Not in physical terms, of course, but in the sphere of the faith. 
And the emphasis is he's a true son. He, the idea is, if we put it negatively, he is not an illegitimate child in the faith. The idea is that he's not a fake. He is a tried and attested and true believer, is Timothy. This is surely an attempt to distinguish Timothy from others who were not legitimate children in the faith. Verse 19 of chapter 1 refers to those who have rejected a good conscience and shipwrecked their faith. But not Timothy. He's a true son. He's, you know, if you get up nice and close to the fabric, he's a 100% genuine bona fide believer in Christ the real deal. And and therefore, he's like a son to Paul. They are common in the sense of the faith that they share. That's the connection. R. Kent Hughes uh, has an insightful observation here, which I, I hadn't really thought about this, in terms of the difference between Paul and Timothy, and then the similarity here. He writes, how heartening were Paul's words to his reluctant successor, his reluctant successor. And I hadn't really thought about that before, but you know, probably Timothy was a reluctant successor to Paul. It's a great thing being discipled by the apostle Paul, but to actually be, be being groomed by Paul to sort of follow in his footsteps, that must put a little bit of pressure on you. Paul's prodigy. And, and when you're so different from him, when the apostle Paul seems like he's Premier League Christian, and you're sort of Division Three Christian. When he is so experienced and mature, both in age and in maturity, Christian maturity, when you're so inexperienced, when he's bold and you're timid and so on, when he's an apostle, you're just an ordinary Christian. And yet in this, what an encouragement. Paul and Timothy, the gap is bridged in the faith. They have this common bond. They are one in the same family in the faith. And you you don't get a stronger kinship than that, do you? Than father and son. Do you know it's a tremendous thing to have this kind of relationship with an older or younger Christian? It's a wonderful thing to be a Timothy who has a Paul or to be a Paul who has a Timothy. Can I just say to some of you here this evening, and we probably fall into either strata of this, can I say to those of you who are more in the Paul bracket, uh, who are more mature in the faith, who are at that natural age where you're more likely to have those who would look up to you, can can I say, I think for some of you, it's a bit of a challenge to be like Paul. You think, I couldn't be in the same league as him either. But the danger is, But because you think that, you don't fulfill the same role that Paul fulfilled. And yet there are a host of young Timothys in this church, myself included, who need Pauls like you to be father-like in the faith, to come alongside us and to give us that word of counsel, to pray beside us in the prayer meeting and set that example in prayer and in life and in godliness. And that's true for the women as well as they look up to mature women in this congregation. And so Paul's need Timothy's and Timothy's need Paul's. And and hopefully, as you see the young guns beginning to develop, it will be a blessing to you. As, As the shoots develop and as they bud and as they flourish, hopefully that will be a blessing 
to the Pauls from the Timothys. So this is his status. He's a true son in the faith. And finally here, notice Timothy's resources as well. They're spelled out by Paul at the end of verse 2. Indeed, they are prayed down by Paul on Timothy. The triplicate blessing is for grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. See, while Paul has the authority to instruct Timothy, he does not have the ability to bless Timothy with grace, with mercy, and with peace. That is something that only God alone can provide. And therefore, Paul comes, and he not only sets an example and gives a bit of counsel, but he prays to God for the resources that God must give Timothy to do his ministry. He prays for the grace of God. He asks for God's undeserved favor on a sinner like Timothy. You need that not only as you begin the Christian life to be forgiven through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you know, we need that in a continual way as well, don't we? Because we continue to sin. We wish that we didn't. We try not to with the help of God's Spirit, but we do. And so we need God's grace for our sin. Paul prays for this. Furthermore, he prays down mercy on Timothy. And mercy is God's surprising compassion when he sees us in a miserable and in a difficult state, when he sees us in trouble and in trial. And here is Timothy, and he's in the middle of a trial. He's right in the thick of a battlefield. And Paul prays down God's mercy and compassion on Timothy that he'll come alongside and that he will minister to Timothy. And then he prays for the peace of God. And peace is that great result of the grace and mercy. When you have God's grace on your sinful life, and when you have God's mercy on the needs in your life, then together you have peace, the peace of God. Not only peace with him as an objective reality, but also peace within when the fireworks are going off all around. Well, these are not bad things to pray for each other. I was just thinking that Paul, you couldn't imagine him finishing an email with just a sincerely, you know. It would have been grace, mercy, and peace, or grace and peace. He would turn it into a prayer. Not a bad idea, is it? Wonderful things to pray. So the recipient is recognized as Timothy. We've met the author, who is Paul. But finally, in the time remaining, I want us to briefly look at the purpose of this book. And so the third thing is this. Know the purpose. Know the purpose of 1 Timothy. Turn briefly, would you, over to chapter 3. Flip over to the third chapter of this letter. Here in chapter 3, we find a crystal clear statement of purpose. Why does Paul write this letter? Here it is, plain and simple. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. 
In this tremendously clear statement, there are two reasons why Paul writes 1 Timothy. The first, did you notice, concerns the apostle's absence. The apostle Paul is absent from Timothy. That's the whole implication of this statement, that Paul and Timothy are separated. Paul hopes to come to Timothy soon. Now, in verse 3 of chapter 1, we find some light shed on this, that Paul had left Timothy sometime prior in the city of Ephesus. And Paul had gone into Macedonia. Maybe he was returning to encourage the churches there. Nevertheless, by this point, Paul has still not returned, and he is physically distant from Timothy. And not only is there this distance, but there's also, we see here, the prospect of delay before the apostles return. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy. But he adds, verse 15, if I am delayed. In other words, this letter was written in part because Paul got held up in a traffic jam. Aren't we so glad that he was held up by some circumstance or another? It was probably a pain in Paul's neck. But it was the reason why we have the letter of 1 Timothy, for our benefit today, by the providence of God. Part of the reason was the apostle's absence, but notice more. I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, secondly, you will know how God's people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Now, why does Paul say this? I mean, the strange thing that struck me as I was looking at these verses and thinking about Paul writing 1 Timothy is, okay, we understand the delay and the distance, but why couldn't Paul wait, you know? Why couldn't Paul just wait the the month or two that it would take him to come back? Here Paul spells it out where he focuses on the conduct of the church. And reading between the lines both here and then very obviously in the rest of the letter, we see that there were significant problems in the conduct of the church in Ephesus. There were major conduct issues. One of the problems was that a number of false teachers had risen up in this church in Ephesus. Paul had predicted this way back in Acts 20 after he planted the church. And more recently, Paul had, it seems, he had returned to the church and he had, in fact, turfed out two men in the church who were teaching nonsense. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they were apparently teachers within the church. Some people believe, reading between the lines, that they were maybe even elders within the church. But these guys were not holding on to the deep truths of the faith. They were sidetracking God's people down unprofitable avenues. And so, verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul had handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Paul's way of saying he excommunicated these guys, turfed them out of the church. However, Paul has now left Ephesus again, And it seems that in the interregnum, there are new false teachers who have risen up within the ranks. And so Paul writes to address that wrong conduct. Paul writes to establish the kind of men who should be teachers and elders in the church. You maybe wonder, why does 1 Timothy have so much to say about leaders? That is the reason why. 
to prevent these guys wheedling their way in. He writes to deal with problems that have come up, maybe through these teachers too, in the public worship within the church, chapter 2. He writes to correct issues about the pastoral care or lack of within the church in chapter 5. And in chapter 6, in relation to attitudes to money. Again, it seems that these individuals had a very unhealthy attitude to cash. And so Paul writes this letter to address the overall conduct of the church in the Ephesian congregation. That's why the letter was written. Now, it doesn't seem the snazziest purpose in the world that he writes to have an orderly church, or as we're putting it, a healthy church. But you know, it is important for a number of reasons that our church is orderly and that it is healthy. And I think we see a number of them in the, in the images. You'll hear a sermon on this later in the series, so I'll not go into this too much. But we see three images which characterize the church, which will be distorted if our conduct is wrong. The first is the image of the family. We are God's household, verse 15. The second is the image of the church of the living God, not a false God. And then thirdly is the image of the church being the pillar and foundation of the truth. If our conduct is wrong and out of kilter, here's what's going to happen. We're going to look to the world like a dysfunctional family. And we're going to look to the world like a church whose God is dead, not alive. They're not going to believe us when we speak of the one true living God. Because we live as if we're still dead in sin. And the world will think that we are a church whose truth is built on sand rather than on a solid foundation. If we don't take 1 Timothy seriously, we won't be the family we should be. We won't commend our living God. We won't adorn the gospel with lives worthy of the gospel. And ultimately, our evangelism will suffer. Because this isn't just about our internal affairs. It's about our external witness. You know, I began by talking about new books on the church. The absolute best book I've ever read on the church is an old one. Well, it's a letter. And it's 1 Timothy. And I trust that you will very seriously, along with those who are preaching it, delve into studying this book. To make this your serious study over the next few months, along with your daily readings, to just try and take a few minutes every day just to read something in this book. This book is something you can read. If you're on a 30-minute bus journey, you can read it within the time. I've done it a few times. It's only six chapters. It will take you less than 20 minutes to read it. And I invite you this week to read it and, if you can, to reread it. You will profit much more from the studies in the groups and from the sermons from the pulpit if you're just imbibing and soaking yourself in the letter. Philip Towner, who uh, is one of the best advanced commentaries on the pastoral epistles, pastoral epistles is 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, Speaking of all of them, he writes this. What do these letters have to do with our situation? Consider the agendas being set by many quarters of the church today. At the forefront, the church's role in changing society. 
The church's responsibility to the poor and the disenfranchised. The Christian message among competing messages. Consider, he continues, some of the perennial issues. A Christian's attitude to wealth. The church's response to cults. Leadership and authority. The role of men and women. Discipline in the church. Finally, he says, consider some of the items on our personal agendas. The true meaning of godliness, suffering and life in the spirit, and the importance of Christian witness. For the church, who wants to understand its role in a complex world, and for an individual Christian who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus today, the pastoral epistles, including 1 Timothy, make very relevant reading indeed. And so with that hope, let us plunge ourselves into this letter. Let us pray.